0: Hey everybody, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the DemCast Podcast Network. I'm your host, Stefan Cox. Today, as part of our Town Hall series in partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma, we present three Democratic candidates for the state legislature from the 44th Legislative District. Join us for a conversation with Representative John Lubbock, April Berg, and Ann Anderson, recorded live on the evening of Tuesday, July 16th. That's straight ahead. Tonight, we will be speaking first with Representative John Lovick, who is representative in position one and who is the sole Democrat running in his race. We will then spend the remainder of the hour speaking with Ann Anderson and April Berg, both of whom are Democrats running for position two. So let's begin with John Lovick. He first served as representative from 1999 to 2007 and then again since 2016 to present. He also recently served as interim speaker of the House. He has been a member of the Mill Creek City and Snohomish County Councils, serving as the Snohomish County Executive from 2013 to 2015. Additionally, Representative Lovick has served as Snohomish County Sheriff and has been a sergeant with the Washington State Patrol since 1997. Representative Lovick, welcome.
1: Thank you very much, Stefan. And I, when you listen, as I'm listening to you, you're The the listeners are probably thinking this guy can't find a job that he likes anywhere. I hope they don't think that. I absolutely love what I've had the opportunity to, to do. I'm honored to serve in the legislature, uh, tremendously honored to have served uh, in other positions, but I'm really glad to be here. And I want to recognize Anita and uh, members of Indivisible. So thanks for having me.
0: You're so welcome. And quite to the contrary, I think when people hear your CV, they're, they're very impressed. Uh, the breadth of your experience, uh, I think, speaks volumes. And, you know, given your experience both in law enforcement and also as a legislator, I would like to start this evening's discussion by getting your response to To the murder of George Floyd by law enforcement officers and the protests and the uprisings that have followed uh, in the subsequent weeks. Because you wrote an op-ed in the Everett Herald where you give your perspective both as someone who grew up black in America and also as somebody who has worked in law enforcement. I wonder if we could just begin by having you share some of your thoughts from that piece.
1: Well, I'll just start by saying when you look at the murder, and that's exactly what it was, when you look at the murder of George Floyd, uh, and you and then you look at just how uh, the man was treated um, I I can't get I just can't get my head away from the fact that I'm looking at an officer with his hand in his pocket with his glasses on top of his head with his uh, Left knee on George Floyd's neck and it was just like a walk in the park for him now I I spent 31 years in law enforcement. I'm, I'm sorry almost four decades but 31 years as a state trooper and I'm telling you, when you get in a in a in a battle with the with the a, uh, a suspect or, or uh, a person you're you are arresting, it's not that casual. It's not you don't put your hands on the, the top of your head. You don't look around at the crowd like there's nothing going on. But you know what? It it, it opened a lot of eyes, uh, Stephan. And I think what people are seeing pretty much what a lot of people had said before. Uh, uh, and I like what one guy said. He said, "We're not having more incidents." It's just being recorded now. And so my thoughts are, it's gonna be a game changer with respect to how we do law enforcement, but it has to trouble, I'm troubled, just tremendously troubled by what I saw in that video and what I'm seeing now in other uh, situations around the country, but also hopeful because I'm I'm hopeful with with what I'm seeing with respect to how people are addressing this and uh, how we are, you know, we wouldn't be in this conversation, I don't believe, but people are looking at this and saying, it's time for us to do something different. And this is the time that we're going to get it done.
0: I I really want to have that conversation about systemic change. Uh, But before we move on from that, I just want to encourage everybody to read this op-ed. It is extraordinary. Uh, I will also mention that uh, April Berg, uh, whom we'll be talking with shortly, also wrote an op-ed for The Herald, and Kat will provide a link to both of those in the chat for everybody. So, as I mentioned, the nation is now talking about, and you, and you mentioned as well, major changes in law enforcement, and and I would like to get your perspective on how you see the state's role in terms of oversight. Of law enforcement, and, and here's where I'd like to begin. You prime sponsored two pieces of legislation that I think are particularly salient. The first was HB 1767, that creates a law enforcement grant program to expand alternatives to arrest and jail processes. The governor signed this in law in uh, 2019. What does that do specifically?
1: You know, basically what it does is we we, we decided we would look and see what were we arresting people for. If, if we were arresting, and we were, we were arresting a lot of people for nonviolent offenses, and we decided that we needed to to have an alternative to, to arrest, find ways to get them the care and the treatment they need. I was a, a state trooper for 31 years, and I saw more than a few times we would arrest someone, take that person to jail. By the time you finished your report, they were back out doing the same thing. So this allowed us to have some alternatives to really look out and see what are some of those offenses that we can actually go out and do things for people to, to help them get the care and treatment they need and keep them from getting arrested so that it won't be this revolving door, arrested uh, in and out of jail. And that's that was the idea behind the legislation.
0: Can you give us a sense of how it's been implemented and how it's working?
1: You know what the budget being what it is and what it was then we didn't have the resources to put the money into it but the, the uh, Stomish County previous sheriff of Somish County had a nice program to 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 help with this And so we feel it's working fine But the beauty of it is that it is the law of the state And it will always be the law of the state and it's just going to be a matter of us getting dollars into it and what the budget that we're dealing with now, it's difficult to get the dollars there, but we will eventually do it because we're, we're creating a lot of, uh, you know, you, you can always pass legislation, but eventually you have to fund it. But the fact that we're able to pass this and and, and help communities out, it's, it's, it's working well, but it's going to work much, much better.
0: I would like to also touch on another bill that you uh, introduced called collecting information regarding police use of deadly force. This was in January, you introduced this. Um, this is obviously something of very clear importance. And to the best of my knowledge, you can correct me if I'm wrong. This did not make it out of committee. What does this bill propose?
1: No, it actually did. Okay. Uh, it, uh, bill, we, we actually passed the bill out of the House and it kind of uh, uh, stalled in the Senate. And uh, it's going to be one of the first pieces of legislation that we will pass when we go back to when we return to Olympia uh, in January. It basically... Uh, went through a process of collecting the data, the use of force data from agencies, because right now we have no mechanism to do that. To say, tell us how many cases of use of force cases you have, going to every single agency and having them provide that information to the uh, criminal justice training center. And they would monitor this uh, through an organization called WASPIC, Washington Association of Sheriffs and Police Chiefs. And I was disappointed, I worked it as hard as I could. We had a short 60 day session. We passed it out of the house, I think unanimously. And then uh, it stalled in the Senate, and that happens occasionally. Uh, a lot of pieces of legislation. Uh, uh, the two other two members who will be looking for trying to become legislators, you'll find that it takes a lot of work to get it through. But I've done the the legwork that I need to do to just it's teed up and ready to go. but We will do this, and now more than ever, we need to know. We need to know about the, the level of use of force. How many cases are right now? We have nothing to tell us. How many cases of use of force of the 300 plus agencies we have in our state?
0: And why is that? Can you give us some insight into why there's been such impediment into getting information about something as basic as uh, police using deadly force?
1: You, you, you know, you know, so it's it's a matter of, it's just a matter of, of just being able to collect the data, uh, and I think that's been the, the drawback. You know, uh, if you remember, the second president John Adams said that uh, facts are stubborn things, and when you get the facts, when 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 you can when you can walk out there and say. These are, how many case, these are how many arrests we made. This is the race, sex, gender of the person we arrested. These are how many cases of use of force. That that will give us the facts that we need to make decisions on how we implement, how we pass legislation uh, in our state. And so I have no idea why it hadn't happened. And I looked around, uh, just just traveling around the state. I, I'm with an organization called Council of State Government, and you travel around the state, uh, around the country, and you see what other states are doing. And I said, it's something we need to do here. Had a lot of support getting it out of the House of, Rep- House of Representatives. It just stalled in the Senate. And that's not unusual, but it's not going to happen again.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you, you, you I, I would imagine that it will probably uh, have a, a much better chance in the next session.
1: Oh, it's gonna. Have, it, it, it's ready to go. As a matter of fact, I've had a couple of conversations with the uh, governor's staff, and I, I've shared with them. You know, there are times that you go to Olympia and you say, "This is my take-home legislation. Everything that I sponsor is my take-home legislation." But this is going to be my take-home legislation. We are going to get this done.
0: I want to ask about another bill that you passed along these lines. This was in twenty eighteen. It was a bill creating mental health response teams. Now, we've heard this discussed as something that potentially should be taking off the list of things that police officers have to respond to. Tell us a little bit about what that bill does.
1: So so let me just take you back and I hope we have the time. So one day I was up at a, at a, a men's shelter cooking meals for them. And I looked out and I saw what 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 looked to be a fight a a real dispute between a couple of people a couple of homeless people at the shelter And as I'm watching this, I'm there deep frying my turkeys and uh, as I'm watching this I saw an officer drive up. I recognized the officer, but I didn't recognize the passenger in the car And so I kept doing what I was doing and then I noticed that the officer stood back Didn't do what I probably would have done in my younger days. Uh, The officer stood back and and made sure that he monitored what was going on, but he let the person in the car. Well, she was a mental health professional. She walked up and spent time talking to the two people, and uh, the two people who were probably in a fight probably could have been arrested. Their license were not uh, taken. They were not handcuffed and taken away, but someone came and gave them the care and the treatment that they need. So I was quite impressed with that. I looked around the state. I didn't see anything like that in place. Uh, I looked, uh, several uh, cities had it, and then I looked around the country and I saw that other places in the country had mental health field professionals going out with their law enforcement officers. Now, I am not saying that this is something that we will be able to continue doing, but what we were, we, what we were able to do with the legislation was to make sure that a person uh, living in our community with mental illness The jail is not the place for them. And I wanted to make sure that we did that so we had field professionals go out with our law enforcement officers and help engage them so that we would prevent an arrest and get them to the care and treatment that they need. And I know it's working well. It allowed us to put teams together, to put money into different teams. Snohomish County, uh, uh, maybe other counties, several cities in each county can get together and put these teams together. I understand it's working well. I, I will
0: just ask you generally um do you feel like we've just run down a, a number of pieces of legislation that you've either passed or had had a real impact on do you feel like your position as someone with a law enforcement background helps in passing these sorts of, of bills on police reform
1: you, you know I do uh Stefan i'll tell you why you know we have a citizen legislature and the beauty of a, of a citizen legislature is you 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 draw people from all walks of life in the community uh i went to Olympia years ago and i remember when i First started, we didn't have a primary seatbelt bill. Well, I was a state troop and I was going to literally hundreds of collisions where people were flying out of the car because they didn't have a seatbelt on. They were required to wear one, but it wasn't primary. So I explained it to the members and we passed a primary seatbelt bill. Didn't pass with a lot of votes, 54 in the House, uh, just 25 in the Senate. Uh, but within a year, we reduced the number of deaths Uh, just by several hundred. And and I found out that many people who didn't vote for it, many of my friends, and I I don't, to hold it against them, but they didn't vote for it, but they were going around the communities bragging about the primary seatbelt bill that passed the legislature. So being in my position, it gives me just a tremendous opportunity to do a lot of things that other people can't do. It's just like that doctor, that nurse, that uh, other person who serves citizen legislatures, really a tremendous way to go. And I have a, a, I like to say I have a good voice and people listen to me and I can speak from experience and that helps. Helps
0: a lot. Well as somebody who's made his living with his voice for the last twenty years, you have a tremendous voice. I will tell you that. you. So
1: you.
0: I want to talk a little bit before in, in the time that we have left, I'd like to talk about your response to COVID. Um, much of the impacts of the pandemic has happened after the legislature adjourned. But you drafted some legislation in late April called the Statewide Pandemic Preparation Task Force. It already has 25 signatures. What's in this bill?
1: So so, so let me just say this. You, you probably know I, I love the military and I love quoting Dwight Eisenhower. And Dwight Eisenhower said, plans are worthless but planning is everything. And basically what he was talking about is you can have a plan that sits on the shelf and does nothing, goes nowhere, and then it, it will be nothing once the, 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 uh, the, the disaster takes place. So when we left the legislature, I knew we were dealing with this pandemic. Uh, I just literally came home the first day and started planning uh, uh, to draft a legislation to, to, to tell us the legislation is basically, kind of in a nutshell, is gonna look back and say, what went right, what went wrong, and what we must do better and there are so many things that we're going to be looking at we're going to be looking at things like uh, uh, extending expiration of license uh, working for at ways to uh, to uh, Boost uh, health care programs uh, automatic hazard pay uh, looking at uh, having a a, a a task force together a volunteer task force of emergency responders to go into communities and not one shoe, one size doesn't fit all. We'll go into one community and maybe it's not as bad there, but we can have our own supply of PPE. But it's it's a, it's a deep bill. And uh, I shared it with members of the legislature, literally drove to different places when I could get out of the house. I drove to different places around the uh, state. And uh, I'm normally pleased if I got five signatures on a bill before I dropped it, Uh, We're not close to dropping this bill, and the first 25 people that I talked to signed on to the bill because they know we need to be planning for the next disaster because the next disaster is going to to happen.
0: And this is something that is going to be presented in the 2021 session, most likely, and not during the emergency session?
1: Well, this is is an interesting thing. Uh, I'm a good friend with the Speaker of the House, and she set up a, a, a pretty tight criteria as to what we can present this year. Uh, And I'm pretty uh, pretty stubborn myself. Uh, I'm one of these guys that I don't give up, so I'm going to keep talking with her and try and get her to to give us a hearing. And the beauty of it is this. There's a section that I put in the bill to, to allow donations from organizations. And can you imagine when we know we need to do this to go to Amazon, to go to the Boeing company, to go to Microsoft, to go to Starbucks and say, we need resources to help us have our own PPE to have this community do this. So we think, and I'm trying to present it to her like that because I I, I know we need to do something because I don't wanna wait until October, November, December when we have something else happen and we're having to shut down all of the schools, shut down all of the businesses. This will give us a chance to, like Eisenhower said, plans are worthless, but planning is everything. Be planning for the next disaster because we think it's going to come.
0: Well, speaking of planning, uh, what are some of your other uh, priorities for next session?
1: Well, you, you you know my 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 mantra uh, in, during the entire time that I have served in the legislature uh, has been uh, to have good schools, good safe schools, good safe roads, and good jobs with benefits. We're going to continue with that one, uh, but I'm going to be working a, a, a tremendous amount of time uh, with the public safety committee because we are going to address uh, this issue that we are dealing uh, we're dealing with with respect to. Uh, uh, Police use of force and I, I can't say all the things that we're doing. I have a long meeting tomorrow We're gonna we were on the, a zoom call today for probably three hours on a zoom call We're gonna do this because you know our nation is so divided right now uh, And I will be the first to tell you uh, I I know uh, Hundreds of police officers and I can tell you this 99.9% of these brave men and women go to work every day to do the job, to protect the community, to honor their oath. And we're gonna make sure that they get to do their job. We're also gonna find a way to hold those who are not doing the job properly, hold those who are mistreating other people, hold those who are are not doing the job well, hold them accountable. And that's gonna be a huge part of what we're going to do. And that's starting right now.
0: Well, Representative John Lovick, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I, I will let people know that they can find out more about your campaign at reelectjohnlovick.org. And that's L-O-V-I-C-K. Thank you again so much for being here. And, and thank you for all you do.
1: I'm glad to be here. and I'm looking forward to uh, my, my two friends uh, on the other line.
0: Well, and that is where we are going to move straight away. So on to our discussion with Ann Anderson and April Berg, who are both Democrats running for position two. So here is how this portion will go. We are going to be asking each candidate a series of platform and audience questions. Because we have limited time, we are asking that each candidate limit their answers to 90 seconds. I'm going to be timing on my end and I will prompt the candidates when it is time to wrap up their answers. I will also encourage both of our candidates to not use the full 90 seconds if they don't need to. I will tell all of you watching that we received a lot of audience questions today and I have worked to incorporate them into the program. We may not have time for live questions, but I will make sure that whatever questions you ask will get to the candidates. I will also stress to the candidates that even though they are running for the same position, tonight is not going to be a debate. We are looking for each candidate to clarify her stances on specific issues, but we're asking that there be no point counterpoint. And so with that, let us meet our candidates. Ann Anderson is the Executive Director of Victim Support Services and is former Executive Director of the Lake Stevens Community Food Bank. April Berg is School Board Director for the Everett School District, and she also serves on the Mill Creek Planning Commission. Ann Anderson and April Berg, welcome to you both.
2: Hi, thank you. Hi, thanks so much.
0: Thank you. Uh, so, Ann Anderson, let's begin with you. Kindly introduce yourself and talk about some personal experiences and achievements that you feel have prepared you for the job of representative.
2: Yeah. Um, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for this opportunity. Um, as you said, my name is Ann Anderson. I am currently the executive director of a the uh, state's largest crime victims advocacy um, center. Uh, we um, run the the uh, Washington State Crime Victims Hotline and help people who um, have been uh, victimized by crime. Uh, Most of the staff are social workers. Um, In addition to the hotline, we also offer mental health services. Uh, Prior to that, um, I was the executive director of a food bank um, and uh, the chair of the advocacy committee. I spent a lot of time Um, And and still do advocating for uh, anti-poverty the different poverty alleviation measures um, Both in the uh, state and federal level Um, A member of RAC, which is the Western Region Anti-Hunger Consortium. We help to ensure that um, That anti-poverty measures are uh, kept in the farm bill Um, I advocated uh, for years for breakfast after the bell. Um, We finally did that. So um, and and all, all sorts of other uh, work, mostly, um, like I said, in the anti-poverty um, arena. Um, and I've been really just uh, my entire life, my entire career has been dedicated to helping my, my community um, in, in one way or another. Um, so mostly through nonprofit and uh, small business consulting.
0: April Berg let's turn to you next Uh, give us an introduction if you will and talk about some of your personal experiences and achievements that you feel have prepared you for the job of representative
3: yeah well thanks for having me Um, and I, so I'm April Berg, and I am currently a school board director for the Everett School District. I am also a planning commissioner for the city of Mill Creek. Uh, The other hats I wear are a trustee for Seattle Children's Theater, and I'm also on the juvenile justice, Snohomish County Juvenile Justice Cultural Competency Board. Um, As you know, uh, the high school, one of the high schools in Everett School District was uh, one of the first to have a COVID positive student in the nation. We were the first one, so I was a part of that effort to shut down the school safely, and move learning to to at-home learning, but I also asked a lot of questions of what can we do for families, Um, and that meant what can we do in terms of technology needs, in terms of food security, in terms of emergency childcare, and because of the answers we got back to those questions, we have provided over 150,000 meals to students. we provided thousands of laptops and hotspots that students will be able to keep through the summer, if they so choose, so they can continue that learning at home. Um, and we also provided emergency childcare. That's the type of leadership um, that I'm hoping to, to bring forward uh, in this next, this next season of service. I'm also, just so folks know, a former small business owner. I used to own the Edmondson Bed and Breakfast. So I really understand what it takes to be a small business owner and to be a champion for one. Um, I've walked a mile in their shoes. I am a former program manager for Boeing. Uh, so I really understand aerospace and the importance of that to the community. And I think all of those things just gives me uh, the background of the 44th. My, uh, my experience really shows the 44th.
0: Thank you to both of you for that. Uh, we'll move on to platform questions right now. And I'd like to begin those by talking about the black lives matter protests in snohomish so as many people in the 44th know on may 31st armed militias made up largely of white men many of whom are affiliated with white supremacist groups gathered in snohomish ostensibly to confront so-called antifa demonstrators who ultimately never materialized but some of the men in the militia did assault peaceful protesters Former police chief Keith Rogers has been criticized for failing to take action and for calling the events, quote, festive. And, and Anderson, let's begin with you. How do you believe local law enforcement should have handled this situation?
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, in scenarios uh, like these, um, people openly brandishing guns uh, make many Washingtonians feel really uncomfortable. Um, and I think particularly in in this case, um, can and did lead to um, dangerous conflict between armed citizens and uh, uh, Protesters later. Um, so, you know, while Washington has stronger gun rights um, in, in our Constitution than we do federally and open carry is legal uh, It is illegal to open carry a firearm in any manner uh, which manifests um, an intent to intimidate another uh, or warrant warrant alarm for the safety of other persons. So um, I, I don't believe this was a festive occasion. Uh, law enforcement's top priority in these situations is to diffuse the situation without people getting hurt and to enforce the law, uh, including the intimidation part. So um, that's, I guess that's my, my take on that.
0: Then same question to you, April Berg. How do you think law enforcement should have handled this situation in Snohomish on May 31st?
3: Yeah, thanks for asking. I um, I was actually out there the day before the armed militia was out there. So I was at the peaceful protest on that Saturday. It was love. It was peace. It was tons of support from the community. I, I, it was hundreds of people. It was amazing. It sounds like um, because of that, the next day there was this armed kind of, uh, you know, we're going to protect the downtown, um, law enforcement dropped the ball. It, there was no Antifa, um, you know, conversations about coming to get the downtowns, Snohomish area or anything like that. And I think in some ways they, um, law enforcement really kind of, that specific law enforcement um, really kind of inflamed it. Um, and by them allowing folks to open carry and brandish in that manner, in a very intimidating manner, um, it, it, al- it was was a message to the citizens, to the, especially to the citizens of color, which is that you're not welcome. And so I believe uh, that the the former chief that allowed that to happen was wrong. Um, the community spoke out at a multi-hour uh, city council meeting about it. And it was just, it was heartbreaking to listen to the kiddos talk about their experiences and how they felt and how this was just kind of the, the cherry on top of the Sunday of Racism that they had experienced um, Sometimes in the schools and and sometimes within that community and so but that's not who Snohomish is and so that's part of what broke My heart is that I know that that city is full of loving amazing people um, who Unfortunately had that situation happen and inflamed by law enforcement and it was seen um, so it was just heartbreaking
0: I would like to continue on with the discussion that Representative Lovick and I were having about the protests and the uprisings uh, in response to the murder of George Floyd uh, th- that have sparked a lot of debate about the role of police oversight. And I would like to ask both of you, and, we'll, and in April Burke, let's start with you, what you believe the state's role is, and specifically the state legislature's role is and or should be in holding police accountable? <laughs>
3: So uh, the state legislature definitely has a role, um, and and part of that, um, and I'm so happy to hear John about some of the bills that he's passed that, that talk about that accountability, understanding where use of force um, is used, understanding um, really what the data says. And I think as a legislature, we have a responsibility for collecting that data and um, having local jurisdictions be really responsible for the forces that they oversee. Um, it, and I think it's it's bigger than that, too. I think that we have a responsibility to our school districts with SROs and having um, some type of consistent messaging and training around that and the fact that those, uh, those folks shouldn't be used as your first line of, of safety for schools. I think it's a really big, broad conversation with a lot of intersections. And I believe the legislature has the ability to affect that positively um, by moving forward with, with many of the measures that um, Representative Lubbock have, uh, has attempted to pass before, as well as other ones that I see coming out from um, from other sitting legislators.
0: I, I could just get a clarification from you. You mentioned SROs. I, I imagine those are officers in the school. What does that stand
3: for? Um, safety Resource Officers.
0: Okay, terrific. Thank you. And then the same question goes to you, and Anderson. Um, how do you see the state's role and specifically the legislature's role in holding police accountable?
2: Yeah, um, I think... Recent events um, just continue to illustrate that we have a long way to go before our criminal justice system is just. Um, I currently serve on the board of a university school of criminal justice. um, And much of my time there is focused on how law enforcement and our criminal justice system uh, as a whole can be uh, improved and more effective and equitable. Um, And we can ensure that uh, current and future uh, law enforcement officers um, are, uh, and criminal justice uh, professionals are better equipped. Um, Washington state voters approved initiative 940 in uh, 2018, uh, which increased accountability for police um, and the rules around uh, use of deadly force. Um, then in 2019, House Bill uh, 1064 further strengthened that law. Um, and as a legislator, I-, I will continue to work, continue the work that I've been um, been doing to try to uh, dismantle systemic problems uh, and increase positive outcomes and accountability, um, as well as expand upon the work that's been done uh, in the legislature to ensure responsibility and accountability uh, of law enforcement agencies.
0: For those just joining us right now, I will say welcome. Uh, we are speaking with Ann Anderson and April Berg. They are both running for representative in position two for the 44th uh, legislative district. I would like to ask both of your thoughts on hashtag the police. This has been interpreted in a number of ways, but broadly, it calls for major changes in policing in this country. Ann Anderson, let's start with you. How do you interpret defund the police and what changes would you specifically like to see?
2: Um, yeah, no, I, I agree. There's there's been this um, really large uh, uh, um, Gap in or you know, d- just a, a whole uh, array of different ways that people have um, Defined it um, most do seem to agree though um, That over time many functions um, Have fallen to police that maybe would be um, better uh, served by other people and um, Yeah, I think um, it's about uh, as as much as 21% of uh, an officer's time is spent responding to and transporting people uh, with mental illness, for example. Um, Police are frequently involved with the homeless population. and you know I, I think there's there's so much that um, that we're asking law enforcement to do that they are um, not trained for. Uh, in my line of work, I spend time with law enforcement, and I've heard them asking for that. Um, same thing with the the, the university board that I was telling you about. Um, so I, what we need to do is either give them this training that they're saying that they need and want or give them the resources um, to have that outside. Um, from an outside source, uh, if a person calls uh, 911 um, to complain about people who are homeless, for example, why can't we send uh, uh, rapid reforce? Uh, sorry, uh, rapid response social workers um, to provide them with support? Uh, I think a lot of um, you know what's happening is just not their job, uh, and we need to find the, the, the correct resources.
0: I have a quick follow-up for you on this, and this comes from Sylvia. And she asks, would you support reallocating funds? And if so, which social services would you prioritize?
2: Um. Yeah, I think that that's a a conversation that we need to have um, with law enforcement to see what it is that they are um, seeing most as far as which social services to prioritize. Um, I think the the really fast um, and and easy answer to that would be um, just even getting the right information into their hands so that they know where they can refer people. Um, so that they're not spending the same you know, longer-term amounts of time with people, um, and then figuring out the data so that we know where the the resources most need to go. Um, and as as far as reallocating um, funding, I think it depends on um, like uh, yes, if we're taking um, you know taking responsibilities uh, away from them. But I do think that it's very important that uh, these people are working in conjunction. Um, Because um, you you don't necessarily know what you're getting into uh, when when you're responding to a 911 call. So I have a staff of social workers and um, certainly wouldn't um, want to send them in um, in a potentially uh, dangerous situation. So I think that uh, having a, a, a scenario where they're working in conjunction is ideal.
0: April Berg, I'll ask the same two questions of you and we'll go one at a time so you can respond to both. Uh, first, I'll ask you how you interpret hashtag defund the police and what changes would you like to see?
3: Yeah, so I um, so how I interpret it is um, is really redirecting the funding. So I um, I wouldn't put it in those words, but I would definitely say redirect, reinvent, reinvest. Um, and what I mean by that is that we really must take funding that we have traditionally just given to police departments and redirect that funding to social services and to things that actually help people where they need it most. Um, and so for examples, it would be substance abuse. It would be social workers. It would be um, housing first initiatives. All the things um, that you see, that the, which is the majority of the police time is spent on things where you don't need someone with a badge and a gun to show up. Um, so redirecting those funds, to where it really makes a difference in our social structure. Um, But again, that takes reinventing. And so we have to reinvent how and what we think of for law enforcement. It really should be peacekeeping, keeping the peace. Beyond that, we need other folks in the community um, to support. And so again, substance abuse counselors, mental health counselors, Um, And then of course, just that reinvention of of how we look at policing. Um, And I think a big piece of that is Demilitarization Um, We have police forces that are literally like little militaries and I think that for a variety of reasons um, That's become the case. So I really feel like a part of that conversation about redirecting funding also needs to be about demilitarizing the police
0: You've answered Sylvia's follow-up question uh, about how you would prioritize reallocating funds, but since uh, Anne did get an an extra turn, is there anything you'd like to say additionally?
3: Um, well, I would say too, is that um, this this particular conversation touches on a lot of intersections, right? So we're looking now at the intersection of law enforcement as well, um, and healthcare and housing and mental health. And so I think as we look at all of the things that um, that is happening right now in our society with the pandemic and with inequities and now with racial, um, r- racial biases and, and just real unrest because of it, I think we need to look at all of those things intersecting and what that means. And so again, as we talk about, um, redirecting funding from from traditional police activities, how does that intersect with housing and support for um, folks who are in substance abuse counseling and who need mental health work? So just I, I just want to expand the conversation and expand our thinking um, so that we can get to a better place.
0: Well, you've anticipated uh, the next question that I have lined up, which is about racial justice, uh, because that is at the root of, of all of this. So I'll ask you and begin with you, April Berg, what work specifically would you like to do at the legislative level to create a more just and equitable society, not just for people in the 44th, but for all the people of Washington?
3: So I think that when we look at um, racial bias and racial unrest, it really goes back to our basic social fabric um, and our social contract that was never really um it was never really meant for based on people of color. And so when we look at the legislature and the laws that we pass, I think that we need to do a couple of things. One is no matter what you um, what you do in terms of policy, legislation, my, my role on the school board, all those policies, it's gonna do something to racial justice, right? It's gonna do something to equity. It's gonna either mitigate, perpetuate, eliminate or exacerbate. Um, in terms of equity. And so I think at the legislative level, we need to look at every law we pass, not just ones that deal specifically with race, but every law to know what it does to equity and what it does to inequities and specifically what it does for racism. Um, I think that is our, that has to be one of our paramount duties. Um, Specifically in the legislature, I I wanna focus on education. That's my wheelhouse. That's where my background is. And so I wanna look at really rooting out the inequities in both discipline and graduation rates for our students of color, because I believe there is a school to, to prison pipeline that can be affected um, with good, strong laws. And those laws are going to include things for trans- transparency and accountability. Um, I'm very data focused. And so I want to know the data. I want to understand the metrics of what's going on and where so that we can make a change. Um, thank you.
0: Thank you. Uh, same question to you, Ann Anderson. What work specifically would you like to do at the legislative level to create a more just and equitable society? As I say, not just for people in the 44th, but for all people of Washington state.
2: Um, yeah, I, I agree that um, not only is there a lot of work to do, but these conversations uh, need to occur um, and, and we need to look at all legislation through that lens. Um, so uh, yeah, these issues are systemic um, and we need system-wide change um, in, in order to to combat them. Um, I think working on, uh, on legislation with these goals in mind um, will decrease the disparities um, that affect, Uh, The lives of people of color in our community and and really lift um, Everyone up in in the community. Uh, We can make progress um, on on our most pressing issues including housing affordability health care And education disparities food insecurities uh, stymied wage growth um, Justice and equality in our society um, Should should be framed in such a way that um, Everyone can see the benefit to their neighbors. So I think really the key is with every single uh, piece of legislation, every single conversation uh, is ensuring that um, that it's being looked at through a lens of social justice and racial justice.
0: I would like to shift next and talk about the economic recovery. As we know, Governor Inslee has recently begun a a phased reopening of the state's economy, but the 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 recovery is, is projected to take many years. Uh, Anne Anderson, let's stay with you on this. How would you work to make sure that individuals and small businesses, specifically, get the help that they need to recover in the forty fourth LD?
2: Yeah, um, I think uh, far too frequently uh, the uh, the focus is on Wall Street rather than Main Street, um, as as cliche as that is, but really um, our our small businesses. Um, were hit very hard, and uh, our our economy was hit very hard. Our families um, are are suffering, um, and fortunately, what's best for individuals and uh, and small businesses is what's needed for economic recovery. Uh, investments in small business um, ensure that money uh, is earned, spent, and stays uh, here locally, and um, investments in um, infrastructure that can create living wage jobs uh, will help uh, to, to get families back on, on track financially. Um, and, um, you know, then also ensuring that uh, we're investing in human services. Um, there are, um, you know, th- th- there are huge intersections um, and, and an, an excellent return on investment with uh, certain um, uh, Human services uh, funding, for example, one that I've used a lot of times, uh, is a Western Washington University study that shows that for every dollar uh, you spend in uh, food security measures, twelve dollars comes back to the local economy. So I think those are kind of the three different um, focuses, um, and all of those will put money back into the pockets of um, of local people um, who will then spend it, and particularly lower and mid level uh, wage income earners uh, then spend their money, pay for sales tax and uh, we have more money to <laughs> to
3: use.
0: So. Okay. April Briggs, same question to you. How would you make sure, as a legislator, that individuals and small businesses get the help that they need in the 44th?
3: Yeah, so this, um, this pandemic has presented some unique challenges, um, and of course, it's highlighted some unique inequities. Um, One of the things that I would do is ensure that there's a level playing field for small businesses and big businesses. As I talk with constituents across our our district, there's a lot of frustration about um, two sets of playing rules, right? So, for you've got big box stores, for example, selling things uh, that our local farmers market are being told that we can't sell, and that's not okay. And so, I think from from that perspective, I think there needs to be a little bit more oversight in terms of how we're applying the rules. For uh, for reopening and uh, and eventually recovering. The other piece of it is is consumer confidence. Um, we can do everything that we want to do, you know, in terms of opening and reopening and putting out guidelines. But if folks don't feel safe doing them, um, then that's a whole nother issue. And I think from a legislative perspective that we can do things in our districts and we can. Um, encourage local, locally uh, the right thing to be done in terms of reopening safely. So that means um, depending on what phase you're in and, and what type of PPE you're using as a as a job. But, but lastly, I think the big picture is how do we get folks, everybody back working? And so you really need to look at innovation, investment, and infrastructure. And infrastructure to me is the key piece of it because that's going to affect big business, small business, local construction workers, and infrastructure with a capital I means everything from your traditional construction projects all the way to Broadband and making sure that we've got um, no digital deserts in our area.
0: Let's move next to healthcare because this is related. Uh, the pandemic has shown real weaknesses in our for-profit healthcare system, especially as uh, as is shown with insurance that's tied to people's employment. Um, and Anderson, let's begin with you. I'm sorry, April. Uh, pardon me. Let's stay with you for this one. Uh, do you support universal single-payer healthcare for all Washingtonians? And if so, how would you like to get there?
3: Um, so I do support it. Um, I think healthcare. I believe healthcare is a human right. It just it's it's a non-negotiable human right. Um, and one of the ways I think we need to get there are having those conversations that you just alluded to, which is having your healthcare tied to your employment is not a winning formula. So we really need to move the ball forward. I think this pandemic is allowing us to have conversations with folks. Um, I've had those conversations with folks who are queuing up for employment security, very very nervous about getting that check, not realizing that they've just had a qualifying event where they also need to queue up for our uh, state-supported healthcare system because they will no longer have their employee um, health care within 60 days. So I think we need to have that conversation. I think that we need to move the ball forward in terms of looking at some creative progressive revenue structures that will allow us to get to healthcare for all in our state. Um, And I, as a legislator, will be very open to looking at that. Again, it's it's moving that dial, cranking it piece by piece, but we got to get there. It is an absolute human right.
0: And then just a quick yes or no to you, as I'm sure you're aware, Indivisible has pushed very hard for Medicare for All. Do you support Medicare for All?
3: I do support Medicare for All.
0: Uh, Ann Anderson, let's turn to you. Do you support universal single-payer health care for all Washingtonians? And if so, how would you like to get there?
2: Yeah, Thank you. Um, I, I do support uh, universal quality health care coverage uh, for all Washingtonians. Um, as a Survivor of domestic abuse. Um, I stayed with my abuser because I was concerned about uh, my family not having uh, Health care um, and it's really frustrating to be, um, you know simultaneously uh, endangering um, Yourself and worried about your children while trying to protect them. Um, so I I know as well as anyone what access to um, to health care uh, means to to people in our state Um As a matter of fact, it means enough to me that um, I um, have not taken any campaign contributions from health insurance companies. Uh, I don't think that that should um, be in the way of uh, getting getting this done. Um, I have faced some criticism about this topic um, because I, I won't sit here and say, hey, I can make this happen tomorrow. Um, or, or in this 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 first year, um, I will not. You know, I'm I'm really big on under promise, over deliver. I will not promise something that I can't deliver. Um, but I absolutely will take every opportunity to increase access and affordability to quality health care for all Washingtonians. I've been endorsed by Washington State Nurses Association, um, and I'm excited to work with them to find cost saving measures within our system. Um, Also, I think a a very important consideration immediately is the expansion of Apple Health um, to protect lower income families and their children. Uh, Currently, a family of four making $75,000 a year qualifies for supplemental health care. But the the cost of living here, the minimum cost of living just to get by in our area is $89,000 a year. And I think we need to immediately close that gap.
0: I will put the same yes or no question to you that I put to April Berg. Uh, As you know, Indivisible has pushed very hard for Medicare for All. Do you support it?
2: Uh, Yes. Profiting off the misfortune and illness of others is immoral.
0: Let's turn next to the climate, and April Berg, we'll, st- we'll start with you on this. In May of last year, Governor Inslee signed a law requiring the state transition to 100% clean energy by 2045. This is in line with uh, global commitments as well. As a representative, what would you do to meet that goal?
3: That's a great question, Um, and I uh, wholeheartedly support his initiative I for me It's clean fuel standards needs to be the first um, the first step we need to be With our folks uh, in the region who have passed it Oregon um, Especially it's it's something that we need to get there Um, I think in addition to that there's a lot of things that we can do um, As a community to get to those goals by 20 um, 2045 and I think for me, again, looking at that education hat, looking at our kiddos, looking at just really good, um, good habits and good way. Um, Putting good, um, I guess, habits is the best word. I'm trying to think of. I'm losing that word. But um, looking at composting, I was just just today had an, a whole show on uh, environmental priorities and how they're still important even during this pandemic. And that was one thing we kind of went on this rabbit trail of like, that's so important. Waste is a huge thing. And as we saw with COVID, um, when we had our transfer stations shut down, we all of a sudden had more folks burning their trash, and we had this this huge environmental thing of like, wait, what? Like we have people burning things. And so now, you know, that was up to lo- localities and say, look, reopen the waste transfer stations <laughs> because we can't have folks burning their trash. So, so I think there's a lot of ways to get there, but we have to have a lot of conversations and some of them begin as simply and as basically as what do we do with our waste? Um, but clean fuel standards for me would be a number one place to start as a legislator.
1: And
0: then uh, let's move on next to something that I know is very important to both of you, and that's affordable housing. As in other parts of the state, the 44th is experiencing an affordable housing crisis. All of a sudden, it's occurring to me. Ann Anderson, did I give you a chance to answer the question about climate? I did not, did I? No, <laughs> I apologize. I, I was I, I was just about ready to move on. And I thought I didn't get to Ann on this one. OK, so I will ask you um, in, in terms of the Governor Inslee's law requiring the state to transition to 100 percent clean energy by 2045. What would you as a representative do to help us meet that goal? Um,
2: yeah, thank you. Um, I'm excited to tackle this issue. Um, it's um, in order to achieve 100 percent clean energy, really, it's, a, it's a, such a short time. Everything has to be on the table and at least considered um, but um, the, the I think we need to incentivize uh, businesses and individuals who uh, do the work of retrofitting their homes and places of business um, electric vehicle incentives um, new green energy infrastructure projects and um, uh, you know all all of these will help uh, we we won't be able to hit the goals without uh, Making serious progress uh, toward uh, our, our largest source of carbon emissions, which is our transportation um, So this is uh, really a point of intersection in our communities. Um, I, I know you're about to talk about housing so maybe you know <laughs> but this kind of ties in you know as um, as the cost of housing has risen um, and and wage growth has stayed stagnant, uh, we are spending a lot of time commuting and so um, we need to to ensure that there are uh, better supplies of housing in places that are transportation hubs um, and places where uh, we can can work and do business um, and um, You know ensure that uh, that people can shorten their commutes Um, This pandemic has also shown that many people can work from home um, and so I think, you know, figuring out what we can do to continue that as much as possible, um, will be very helpful as well.
0: You did anticipate the next question because I mentioned the next question, but uh, I think there's probably more that you can add to this. So uh, we do know that the 44th is an, is experiencing an affordable housing crisis, as are many other uh, regions in our state. So I will put this to you first, Ann Anderson. How do you create more affordable housing while balancing, as you say, environmental concerns and also regional growth concerns?
2: Yeah, um, I, I did kind of start to talk about uh, that prior. But um it, it has become a, a major challenge and we need to expand programs uh, like the housing trust fund um, To ensure that working families um, can can live near employment centers um, And we need to focus our growth where transportation and infrastructure is available uh, to get people uh, where they need to be the school to work um, and and um, and Really, uh, we can't successfully solve this problem without an increased supply of of housing and uh, a focus on living wage jobs You know, it's frustrating to know that there are people in our our community who are working you know two and three jobs and uh, you know are struggling to keep a roof over their heads. So, um, you know It needs to be addressed on really on all sides um, but uh, you know a, a big portion of that is um, ensuring that people have access to to transportation so that they can get to work um, and that means um, growth in, in areas where um, there are logical hubs also at, that will help with uh um food deserts and uh you know all sorts of other things that come from having to um to commute. So
0: April Berg, same question to you, and it is a large and interconnected uh question as Ann Anderson is, is alluding to. How do we create more affordable housing while also managing to balance things like environmental and growth concerns?
3: Absolutely. Um, And I will say, uh, I'm really happy to be uh, the sole endorsed candidate for both the Sierra Club as well as the Washington Conservation Voters. Um, And those were two, this question specifically were things that I addressed with them. It's a tough problem. We need more housing. We need more affordable housing. Um, And and one of the answers is density. And it's in density in places potentially um, that aren't used to seeing more density, but we have to do it smart and we have to do it green. Um, And there are absolutely ways to get that done. In addition to that, we need to look at local jurisdictions uh, in terms of some of the local ordinances that impact density um, and the and really preclude the um the availability of workforce housing I, I call it workforce housing because um because really we're talking about housing our entry-level teachers and doctors and or teachers and nurses and firefighters um and sometimes the the conversation gets a little nimby you know not in my backyard when we talk about who we're housing and where so um, specifically in my community i have fought for workforce housing i've spoken you know advocating for that, um, because I think that's where we need to go. But accessory uh, dwelling units, um, ADUs, I think are a big piece of it, allowing folks to have a little more density on their own personal property. There's lots of ways to get there, but yes, fully funding uh, the the affordable housing, the housing trust fund is huge and necessary um, and cannot be forgotten. Even though we are going to be coming out of a pandemic soon, um, but we again, this has to be done green, and we have to put infrastructure, uh, housing infrastructure, first.
0: We are running somewhat short on time here, but there are some very important questions that I want to get to, uh, not least of which is education. Uh, The state is projected to have terrible budget shortfalls in 2021, in part because of our regressive tax system, but also because of the fallout from the pandemic. April Berg, where should the money come from to fund our schools and what programs will you prioritize? Let's go with you first, because as you say, you're Everett School Board Director
3: yes and so education as you know in our state is a paramount duty um the majority of our education funding is constitutionally protected and that's an awesome thing unfortunately the prototypical school funding model does not reflect the um accurately how our schools are actually run so that regardless of the pandemic needs to be updated so that we are actually funding what we need which are counselors which are um added support services for our kiddos um I really do want to focus on our regressive tax structure. I really do not want to cut our noses off to spite our face and move into austerity because of this crisis. The crisis is highlighting inequities, and I believe this is an opportunity to reset the table and that our state's budget needs to reflect our values. And as we know, in this state, we value education. I simply am not going to say, we need to cut this and we need to cut that, and then everything's going to be fine, because that's just not the case. We have a regressive tax structure that if we could just get on the road to progressive, if we could just start turning that dial a bit, um, we would not have to have conversations about what are we going to take away, what are we going to slash and burn. It is all important. Our kids are important. Education is a paramount duty, but it's also, I believe, a basic human right that we must protect.
0: A quick follow-up comes from Sean, Uh, we'll stay with you on this, April. Uh, Do you support lowering to a simple majority uh, school district bond passage? Right now I believe it requires a two-thirds vote.
3: It does. And thank you, Sean, out there for asking that question. And I think that we need to move to a simple majority for capital bond uh, passage. It's our communities need these schools. Our communities are voting in the majority to have schools supported with capital projects, and we need to go to a simple majority to get it done. Thank you for that question.
0: Anne Anderson, back to you. Where do you feel the money should come from to fund our schools, given the state of, of sort of parallel crisis that we're in right now? And what programs would you prioritize
2: yeah thank you um, uh, I I do agree um, and and have um, advocated for for years for um, for changes Washington State does have the most regressive tax uh, system in the nation uh, we are ranked 50th um, unfortunately um, because all of our funding comes from sales tax and people who uh, make less money spend more um, more of their money than um, Than those who have uh, money to save, Um, people at the who who earn less are um, spending a much higher percentage of their their tax or of their money on taxes. Um, So um, we do need to to address that, and I think um, elimination of corporate tax loopholes um, is something that we need to look at uh, absolutely, Um, and then um, ensuring that um, again um, with, with living wage jobs. Um, if people are making enough money, again, they are spending more money. They're paying more into, uh, paying more sales tax, paying more into our system. And, um, that does help with our, um, with our budget. Um, and as far as school goes, like, yes, absolutely. Um, it is our, a paramount duty, um, to, to fund our schools. They will be funded. And, um, I, you know, I, I think alleviating some of that, that pain with uh, looking looking at corporate tax loopholes will be helpful.
0: I will ask Sean's follow up question to you as well. Do you support lowering a school district bond passage to a simple majority?
2: Um, Yes, I have worked on uh, school bonds and levies for um, districts that I my kids don't even attend uh, school in. because I I know the importance um, of that and of uh, helping uh, some of the schools that have a harder time passing those. So uh, if there's a way to make that easier, um, it's it's in everyone's best interest. It's very important for um, for kids, and it's also um, a, a, an economic benefit to to everyone. So,
0: a few more audience questions before you go, uh, and we'll stay with you on this. Does your campaign accept corporate donations, and if so, which corporations?
2: Um. I suppose that would uh, depend. Uh, for example, um, my family owns a small cattle ranch and that's a corporation <laughs> um, and I would happily take their money. Hi, mom. I hope you're listening. <laughs> hmm. um, yeah. You know, I, I think that that's just a really difficult uh, question to ask because uh, I, I think the, the idea that someone says, you know, when, when somebody talks about uh, corporation, I, you know, I think there are different ideas about what that could mean. So yes, um, I'm, I'm okay with taking um, money from from business, um, but like I said before, um, you know, I I am you know, the candidate in this race who did uh, refuse to take, for example, corporate money from uh, health insurance companies. So I I, I guess I, I realize the correct answer is no, but <laughs> but it just depends um, on uh, on the business because I you know.
0: Okay, April Berg, same question to you. Does your campaign accept corporate donations, and if so, which corporations?
2: Yeah, that's a great
3: question. And so for my campaign, um, I'm not accepting any fossil fuel money um, or any money from uh, from polluters. That is one of the things that I signed that pledge early on in the campaign. Um, but I am going to, I have taken uh, corporate money, I guess that's the best way to put it. I'm very selective and I have a very um, big Filter that I place that through in terms of corporations and I have told a few of them like no That's a non-starter for me. And again with the fossil fuels, uh, you know, any polluters tobacco any of that stuff um, I will say that it's um, It's yeah, it's I want to get corporate money out of politics. So 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 badly Um, And I really want to be an advocate in Olympia for the voters and so I think that as we go through this election cycle and um, any election cycle, the more we can get corporate money out of uh, out of politics would be awesome. And I am looking forward to hopefully being a legislator and figuring out how to do that. Haven't figured it out yet as Citizen X running for this office.
0: Let's stay with you on this next question, uh, April. Sylvia asks, how will you support undocumented people who are excluded from federal aid during the COVID pandemic?
3: That's a great question and I, um, it, honestly, I I believe that we need to be supporting our undocumented um, folks in our communities the same way we are supporting um, our community. I don't like that distinguishing that line that we make and say, oh, you, you're documented or undocumented, so you get support and you don't. Everybody's here. We're part of one community and we're being hit by a pandemic. So I would advocate for the same support. I know California has done some inventive things in terms of getting money directly to those workers and to those families, and I would be support of that as well. I I will tell you, um, as a school board director, that's one thing that we think about all the time is how our schools are safe spaces. They are places for folks to, to get education, get what they need. And, um, and really, uh, we protect them as much as we can. And I want to bring that same emphasis, that same, uh, that same compassion with me to Olympia.
0: Same question to you. Anne. how will you support undocumented people who are excluded from federal aid during the COVID pandemic?
2: Yeah, I I agree wholeheartedly that um, everyone here uh, deserves um, access to whatever help they need. We're in this together, so.
0: Uh, One. Actually, I think we have time for just a couple more questions here. Uh, Anita Dietrich, who is uh, founder of Snohomish County Indivisible, asks, income disparities negatively impact whether a person accused of a low level crime will be incarcerated until their trial. Do you support bail reform, especially in light of covid? Uh, And let's stay with you, please.
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, This is something that um, has been um, that I've been talking about and advocating for for years and years. Um, It is absolutely unfair that someone who can't afford to, uh, to uh, can't afford bail is stuck in that system because what happens is, you know, until their, their court date, um, they're very likely to lose their job. They can lose their homes. And before they have, um, ever been, um, had the opportunity for a trial, their entire life has been derailed and they're financially ruined. Their relationships are ruined. Um, and it's, Absolutely ridiculous to me that um, that dependent upon how much money you have, um, you know, you you may completely have uh, ruined your life may be completely ruined.
0: April Berg, same question to you: Do you support bail reform, especially in light of COVID nineteen?
2: Absolutely, and I supported it before
3: COVID nineteen. Um, I. I it's awful. It's um, It's a way of keeping folks incarcerated over debt. And I think that um, even if, and hopefully none of you have, but even if you have been through the system in terms of helping someone get out of jail. And I, when you you go in and they set this bail amount and you listen and you think, okay, I'm gonna help this person, I'll, I'll pay this bail amount. Well, then you say, no, we, we won't take you. We can't take that money. You've got to go over to a bondsman and you've got to go and next thing you know, there's fee after fee after fee. And it's just this never ending revolving door of debt um, and and unfortunately imprisonment as a result of it. So I absolutely do support reform, not only um, as a politician and as a leader, but but as a citizen um, that has helped other citizens get out of situations that are just untenable. Um, and it seems like the the, the cards are stacked against them all because of bail and, uh, and how it's, it's just, um, it just keeps them in. So yeah, I would definitely support it. Thank you.
0: As everybody can see, we've gone a little bit over, uh, over time here. Uh, So I'm just going to ask for 60 seconds for some final thoughts and where people can go to learn more about your campaign. And Anderson, let's begin with you.
2: Um, Yeah. Um, Thank you everybody for, for joining us and for the, great questions um if you would like to learn more about uh our campaign uh, our website is www.friendsofannanderson.com we are also on uh social media uh, at friends of ann anderson on facebook at friends of ann anderson on uh instagram and at friends of ann on twitter <laughs> um uh, or just uh i don't know yeah wave me down somewhere <laughs> <But> <laughs> great. i, I I would love to hear from from anyone. My, my favorite part about all of this has been um, all the different insight and meeting with people and, you know, hearing all these different things. So please do reach out. I've been encouraging um, anyone to, to do that. Oh, uh, there's also uh, friends of at Gmail dot com. So and I'll give you a call back.
0: OK, uh, April Berg, you get the final word this evening. Uh, 60 seconds for you. And uh, let us know where people can go to learn more about your campaign.
3: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for um, having me on tonight. And thank you so much for everybody tuning in and for all the fabulous questions. Um, you can find my campaign at www.aprilberg, That's www.aprilberg.com. <laughs> I've said that a lot on phone banking lately. Um, the other way that you can find me is uh, by tuning in each week, each Tuesday at 3 p.m. for Kitchen Conversations, where I talk with community leaders about kitchen table issues. Today, of course, with the environment, we've covered education, with covered healthcare. Next week, I'm super excited to let you know that we will be talking about ethnic studies as curriculum in K through 12 schooling. And we have got um, some amazing guests who are doing the work in that space. So I encourage folks to reach out to me via my website. You can find all my social media channels there as well, but really um, but email me at april at aprilberg.com because I do love talking to constituents, answering questions and helping you get where you need to be. Um, so just thank you again for having me. This has been a fabulous night.
0: Thank you again to all of our candidates, April Berg and Anderson and Representative John Lubbock. Thanks again also to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julie Angieevsky with Indivisible Tacoma. A reminder to join us on Tuesday, June 23rd for a town hall with Washington Superintendent of Public Instruction, Chris Reichdahl. Find out more information at the Washington State Indivisible Podcast community on Facebook. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast Podcast Network. Learn more about Demcast at DemcastUSA.com. Special thanks to Lori Cowell, and as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.